Uh, I won't start over. <laughs> Pastor Paul and his family are here. Blessing to have you back, brother. It's, it's good to see you and your family. I trust that the Lord has brought you much peace and uh, has given you stronger burden and vision for the, for the kingdom spreading, not just the newest minister, but across our country and around the world. And we look forward to you coming back to minister in an official capacity next week. Until then, I have one more week. Uh, and so we are wrapping up uh, our, our series through the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 10, which may seem a little out of place for wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount because it's obviously not in the Sermon on the Mount, is it? It's in chapter 10, and that's, that's clear to us. However, it is the beginning of the second discourse that Matthew records for us. There are five in his gospel, and we, the Sermon on the Mount is the, is the main part of his first discourse, and we are now entering into the second discourse, and again, we find him teaching his disciples. Before we get into that, I wonder if you've ever been in a position where you were about to take over a job or a responsibility for someone who has done a fantastic job in the face of adversity and trial, and they have done great things for the organization, and here you stand ready to take over for them. Joshua was in that situation. Moses has died, and Joshua is wondering what's next. And the Lord says to Joshua, take courage, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And we hear echoes of that in this section that Jesus teaches his disciples. In fact, we see the Lord saying to Joseph, sorry, to to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. And all through the book of Joshua, we see him leading out that mandate. And at the end of his life, at the end of the book, he gives a similar charge to the leaders of Israel who are going to take over for him once he dies. And he says essentially the same thing. Take courage and do what is right before the Lord. Do not worry about what is going on around you, essentially. The Lord is with you, and He will protect you. He is, in a sense, He has given us this land thus far, and He will continue to do that. Only do not turn away from the Lord your God. And be careful to do that all He commands you. We see here that Jesus, in the beginning of the, of the chapter, calls out the twelve disciples calls them apostles. And I want to put a footnote here. That includes Judas. And put your finger on that because I'm going to come back to Judas in a little while. But the important thing for us to know at this point is that Jesus calls out from the crowd 12 men who will be his closest men, that he will pour his ministry, his life, his leadership, his words into. And knowing that
as sheep among wolves. And we can imagine that the disciples were thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, going, wait a minute, there's false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And now you're sending us out to them? Yes, Jesus is sending them out. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, he says. And notice the language that he uses in verse 19. When they deliver you over. It's not a question of if. It's a question of time. They will deliver you over. And we hear echoes of the Sermon on the Mount even here. Do not be anxious about how you are to speak. Remember that? Don't be anxious about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. The Lord knows all of those things and he'll provide them for you. And here Jesus is echoing that again. He says, don't be anxious about how you're to speak when you're dragged before them, when you're delivered in front of them. Or what you will say will be given to you in that hour. By who? The Holy Spirit of himself. So the Spirit empowers them in their ministry. And then he goes on to say, you can read it with me, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And we see echoes of that even in our age today, do we not? Children rising up against parents. Not necessarily put them to death in North America, but rising up against parents and against their authority and saying, no, I'm doing this. I identify as that. The faith that you taught me no longer applies to me. But there's a promise to the one who endures to the end. They will be saved. And then he says, when they persecute you, again, it's not a question of if they will, it's a question of time. When they persecute you, in a sense, he's giving them permission to flee to the next town. And he reminds them that you are not above your teacher. You are not going to be better off than me. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. Paul said to Timothy, if anyone who desires to live a godly life, they will be persecuted. So I have to, I have to be perfectly transparent with you this morning. This, this was one of the toughest sermons for me to work through in this whole series. And I know I've said that a few times, but it's true. And I have to say to you that this series has spoken just as much to me as, as I hope it has to you. And that's why I, I entitled this sermon, Have No Fear. Have No Fear. So Jesus says, so have no fear. Despite all these things that I've said to you, how I've laid all this out, have no fear of them. Why? For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. There is a current scandal with our Prime Minister. Nothing remains hidden forever. Sins will find you out. It should be a powerful lesson to us to keep short accounts with God. And I know I've said that to my own group of men that I used to work with in another job. I would say, you know, don't worry about all of this and worry about who knows and who doesn't know. It will all come to light eventually. It's not if, it's when. It's a matter of time. What we have to do is be patient. And there's a ring of justice in that sentence, isn't there? 
Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. The truth will always be exposed. It's just a matter of time. And then we see Jesus telling him, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. You have to understand, in that, in that era, housetops were flat. And it was very common for people to stand on their housetop and proclaim things out to the neighborhood. In fact, in certain times, in certain seasons, in certain festivals, people would blow trumpets from their housetops so that people, all the people could hear. I think nowadays, if there was somebody on my roof screaming, there'd be some EMS people called. But for them, it was, a, it was a regular thing. And Jesus is saying to them, what you've heard me say essentially in secret to you, you now need to say publicly, openly. It's time for you to stand out and identify the, the person that you follow. And what you've heard me teach, essentially in secret to you, make known to all. And he goes on to say, Do not fear those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This word kill is used to, des- to describe a situation where you kill anything, any way, whatsoever. And we see the word used to describe those who Jesus is saying, do not fear those, do not fear men, do not fear humanity who can only take your body but can't touch your soul. They may make your life miserable. They may do everything in their power to deplatform you, to take away your reputation, to tarnish you, to make you look foolish. And in fact, they will go out of their way to do that very thing. But they can't touch your soul. And then Jesus says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There were a number of places in this section where I, I was going down many rabbit trails. And we'll come to one of those and I'll, I'll lay them out for you. But this, this was one of them where I was very tempted to launch into a doctrine of hell with you. Maybe we'll do that at a later date. But understand that Jesus is being very clear here about who they should fear. Remember that he's going to send them out. I'm going to send you out amongst wolves. And you need to be innocent, but you need to be smart. And in being smart and innocent, you need to know that they will hunt you down and try to take your life. That's what he's saying to them. But don't fear that. Fear the one who can take both your soul and your body in hell. And notice how he says soul and body in hell. Too many people that I, that I hear teaching about the doctrine of hell is that it's not a bodily place. No, it is a bodily place. We would go through the fact that everybody is raised in the final judgment. Some for eternal life, some for eternal death. It's a bodily resurrection. They will go to hell in body form with their soul to be there forever. 
And I've heard too many people say that hell is the, is the absence of God and his grace. That's true to a degree. It's a place of absence of his grace, his common grace, his love, his mercy. But he is in no manner, no shape absent from that place. For hell is a place that everyone who goes there will experience God in wrath and in justice for eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's not a destruction where we would look at and say, well, that means that Jesus will be talking about annihilationism, that you're there for a period of time and then your body and soul disappear. No. No. It's an ongoing destruction. It's a state of ruin that Jesus is talking about here. Do not fear those who kill the body. This word fear is used many times in the New Testament. And it's used to describe someone who's put to flight by a terrifying notion. Or it seizes you with alarm that you can't even move. You ever been that scared before? I kind of get that way if I see a spider on the floor. I'm a big guy. But I will stop in my tracks if there's a little black thing on the floor just kind of walking across. I am done. <laughs> but that's only a, a, a microcosm of the fear that is being referred to here. Then he goes into an object lesson for us. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, we understand that a penny is not worth very much, right? So that must mean that the sparrow's value is not a lot. It doesn't, it doesn't mean much in the material world. Jesus' point is, is that those things that are so immaterial in our eyes are still valuable to him. He knows when those sparrows fall. In fact, it's his will that those sparrows fall. For nothing happens in this world outside of his will. But Jesus' point is, is this, is that even though these sparrows are, are tiny and insignificant in this life, you're not. You're not. And again, there's echoes of the Sermon on the Mount coming through. Right? Have no fear. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Because God knows everything that you need even before you pray it. And if you seek his kingdom first and his righteousness, he will give you all these things that you need. He loves you. In essence, Jesus is saying to you, you are far of far more value and worth to God than these two sparrows. And if they don't fall outside of his will, how much more will he take care of you? Do not fear. Have courage. Because even the hairs of your head are numbered. Even if that number is dwindling over time. Jesus says, fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Do not fear those who will kill the body, who only have temporal power in this world. 
Later in Jesus' life, when he's before Pilate, Pilate would say to him, you know I have the power to kill you or to release you. Jesus answered to him, and I, I almost envision, like, I don't want to get, you know, into it too deep and say, that, you know, this is what happened, but I can almost imagine Jesus looks straight into Pilate's eyes, and in a very calm voice, he says, you would have no power unless my Father had given it to you. And I wonder if there was a chill that ran down Pilate's spine when Jesus said that. Because you know that Pilate's life was all full of turmoil and he was even there and afraid of riots and and things getting out of hand and he didn't want to lose his prestige and his power that he had received from Rome. And here Jesus is saying to him, you would have no power at all unless my father had given it to you. You have no power over me. When Paul and Peter are dragged before magistrates and rulers and kings, Peter, the once disciple who was denying Christ in a courtyard, after the resurrection of his Lord and Savior, he's preaching boldly. Paul, dragged before governors, beaten, whipped, stoned, left for dead. And I love that part where he's stoned, left for dead. Everybody leaves. His, his people are around him and he gets up and walks right back into the city. I don't know about you, but that's the last thing I would be doing. Be like, okay, shake my clothes off of the dust. Roger that. Message noted. I'm out of here. Now, Paul, he went right back into the city. Because he knows whom he's supposed to be afraid of. And these men are not it. Church history is littered with the courage of believers. I took the liberty of looking up something in Fox's Book of Martyrs. And if you have not read that book, uh, you need to get a copy. If you don't have a copy, come see me. I have one or two that I may lend to you. But you need to read it. It's shocking. It's shocking. What the Roman state did to Christians. It's shocking. How not only men were treated, but their wives and even their very children, sometimes in front of their own eyes before they felt the same demise. Marcus Aurelius, and a lot of us know who that person may be, and we may have heard his name. He has risen in stature and and awareness in the last five years. There's an author named Ryan Holiday who's written many books on Stoicism, and he holds Marcus Aurelius up as this this person to model your life after. And and I've read a few of his books wondering if he would ever get to this point in Marcus Aurelius' life, and he never does. But do you understand that Marcus Aurelius was one of the most savage rulers against Christians in the early church history? So for all his stoicism and for all his philosophy, when it came to Christians, he would murder them in the streets. It says here that the cruelties used in this persecution were such that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight and were astonished at the intrepidity of the sufferers. Meaning that the things that these people were going through were so horrendous that they they couldn't bear to look. 
And yet one thing stood out to them the most was how the ones who were receiving all of this horror, the Christians, they took it. Many of them not fighting back. Many of them silent. Many of them willing. In fact, there's this one man named Germanicus who's labeled a true Christian was delivered to the wild beasts on account of his faith and behaved in such an astonishing courage, listen, that several pagans became converts to the faith which inspired such fortitude. And that's not a sole situation. That happened all throughout church history where the community would watch Rome come in and just do horrendous things to the Christians. And they would be so impressed that some of them became Christians themselves because they would watch the testimony of Christians being slaughtered for their faith. Where many of their own friends and compatriots in the paganism system would switch in a heartbeat because they were afraid of losing their life. And probably one of the most famous is Polycarp. I won't go through the whole backstory, but he says this. The proconsul urged him. This is, this is right at the end where he's going to, he's literally going to be led out to his execution. And he, the proconsul says to him, swear, swear to Caesar, and I will release you. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp says this, 80 and 6 years I have served him and never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And he walked out to his own execution. Church history is littered with accounts of that because they did not fear those who could take only the body but not touch the soul. They marched out in this kind of courage because they know that everything that's hidden will be revealed either in this life or in the life to come. Fear not, therefore, for you are more value than many sparrows, Jesus says. And then he, in verse 32, he says, so, and again, that's, a, that's, a, that's another way of saying, therefore, all of these things that I've told you, so, therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before men I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And we've seen this phrase so many times already in the Gospel of Matthew. Where is our Father? He's in heaven. The Lord Jesus is with us here. Where's our Father? He's in heaven. You notice the, the pronoun there? My Father. I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. What is this acknowledgement that Jesus is talking about? It's not just to agree. It's not just to give intellectual assent to something that you know is true. But it's to, de to declare it openly. Especially in the face of adversity. Jesus is saying everyone who does that about me before men I will do the very same thing before my Father in heaven. So when we stand before God, and if we've been faithful to Jesus Christ in this life, and we've endured, and I'll unpack that a little bit more later, 
and we've acknowledged Christ, and we've acknowledged our allegiance to Jesus here, Jesus says, I will do the very same thing for you before my Father who is in heaven. Can you imagine that? Our Savior, our Lord, our High Priest, our Mediator, our King will acknowledge before God the Father that you belong to Him. That you are His. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This word deny is pretty self-explanatory. It means to deny you, yourself, or someone else to reject, to refuse, to be associated with. To say, in essence, that you have no relation with this person. Whether through family or friendship, there is no connection between you and them. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, one of the things that popped into my mind was, well, what about Peter? He didn't just deny Christ once. He denied him three times. And from what I remember in my Bible, he wasn't denied by Christ. So, what's up with that? I want you to follow with me through a few things in regards to the difference between Peter and Judas. Because they both denied Christ. And you'll forgive me for not having slides here to help along, but just I'll try to do it clearly so that we can follow along. And it, it won't be that hard, I think, to follow along, but that's easy for me to say because I've done it here. <laughs> but you know that in every one of the Gospels, the sequence is pretty much the same. Judas makes a deal with the Pharisees and Sadducees to betray Christ. There's the Passover. Then there's Christ's prediction of Peter's denial. And then there's Judas's betrayal. Now in the Gospel of Mark, we see that Judas makes a deal. The Passover is, is held. And the betrayer is exposed. Jesus exposes the betrayer. Now the disciples don't really know what he's talking about. Judas does. And then he makes the prediction that he will be handed over. And Peter makes that bold statement, even if all fall, <laughs> I'm not going to fall. No way. And we know what Jesus says to him right after that, right? You think you're so strong, Peter? Before the rooster crows tomorrow, you're going to deny me how many times? Three. I can imagine Peter going, no way. Nope, not going to happen. And then we see Judas comes to the garden with a host of soldiers and he betrays Jesus in front of them all with a kiss. And then when he realizes his 
his actions. I believe there's, there's regret there, but I, I don't, I'm not convinced that there's repentance. And in fact, if you remember the story, he throws the money at their feet and he leaves. And he goes and he hangs himself on a tree. And the Old Testament scriptures say to us that everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. In the Gospel of John, the Passover happens. The betrayer is outed in the Gospel of John. He's not just identified, he's outed. Meaning that Jesus says to Judas, go and do what you need to do. The disciples thought, oh, he's he's just going to go and make some more arrangements for the Passover. No, Jesus was saying, "You, you can now go and begin the process of my arrest. You can, you can now go and betray me. And then he gives them a new commandment. There's, there's the Passover. There's Christ's prediction of Peter's denial. And we, we've covered that. And then there's Judas's betrayal and Judas's death. And we see it in the book, Gospel of Matthew, too, that Judas makes a deal. There's the Passover. And then we get to Luke. Turn with me with, to Luke for just a second. Because Luke 22. There's something unique about Luke's account of this that... It's just beautiful. That even in the midst of this horror and this betrayal that's going to happen, there's something very beautiful about what Jesus says to Peter. Chapter 22, starting in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. How chilling would those words be? That he might sift you like wheat. I mean, he, he wants to kill you. He wants to annihilate you. He wants to separate you from the wheat from the chaff. To utterly destroy you. But look at what he says. But I've prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. He never prayed that for Judas. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see that? Satan wants you, and he's going to kill you if he has his hands and has his will. But I've prayed for you. And when you return... Strengthen your brothers. He's, 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 going, he's going to tell Peter, you're going to deny me three times. But he's revealing to Peter that I'm going to restore you. And when you're restored, take care of your brothers in Christ. And Peter says, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to be willing to go to prison and to death. And Jesus says to him, Peter, the roosters will not crow this day until you deny me three times. So why do I bring this up amongst a host of other things in this section? Well, first of all, acknowledging God is more than just an intellectual assent. It's more than just saying, yeah, Jesus is real and, I can, and in Judah's case, I could see him and I can touch him, shared meals with him. The abiding that we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount is much more than just an intellectual ascent. It involves your heart, your mind, your attitude, your actions. It involves all of you. 
And the promise that we find not only here, but in in this section here that, that Jesus says to Peter, the promise is for those who believe and the warnings are for those who do not believe. You see what Jesus says here back in Matthew? Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. That's the promise. The warning is, is everyone who denies me here in front of people, I will deny before my Father. Again, there's echoes of the Sermon on the Mount on here, right? Lord, Lord, we did all these mighty things in your name. We cast out demons. We did all this ministry in your name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. I'm not going to acknowledge you before my Father because you did not acknowledge me. We also know from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus told us not to judge. We cannot judge the heart because we are not God. But there are certain things that we can do when we look at somebody, like a false teacher, we we look at the fruit, right? We look at the fruit because everything will be revealed. It's just a matter of time. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You remember? So although we can't fully judge we can look at fruit and draw some conclusions. All it, would, all it would take is for you to go back into one of the Gospels and look at Peter's heart before the Lord. Who do people say I am, Jesus says. Peter's the first one. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, that's good, Peter. That's a really great answer. And by the way, you didn't come up with that on your own. God gave that to you. That's the great confession, right? Contrast that with Judas when the woman comes in and breaks the perfume and puts it on Jesus and in his heart he's saying, why is she doing that? That's a year's worth of wages right there that she's just wasting. She should, she should have sold that and given it to the poor. And then we're given some insight into that because he said that because he was the one who held the money bag and at certain times would steal money out of it for his own purposes. That's fruit. Bad tree. Bad fruit. But Jesus chose him to be one of the twelve. The context here in Matthew chapter 10 is to have no fear of those who can do all these things against you physically, maybe vocationally, maybe in your family. You have no fear of them and what they can do because they can't touch your soul. And there's, insur- there's assurance in that because if Jesus chose his disciples, we also read in Scripture that Jesus chose us for salvation before the foundation of the world. And for those he called, he justified. And for those he justified, he sanctified. And for those who are sanctified, they will be glorified. Back to John chapter 17, Jesus says to to God the Father, all those you have given me, I haven't lost one, not one, except the one who is destined to, to deny me. And it wasn't even really a loss, because we look back in the in the room and Jesus released him to go do what he needed to do. You see how it was Jesus' timing? 
He was in full control of everything that happened in his life because he's God. So what about Peter and Judas? Peter's restored. Judas is not. When Peter dies, upside down, crucified, and he meets his Lord and King in heaven, Jesus says, this is my brother, Peter. He died for me. I died for him. He's covered with my righteousness. And who's Jesus saying that to? God the Father. I also believe it's not, it's not about the fact that God didn't know these things and somehow he needs to be told by the Son, oh yeah, this person's mine. No. Because that's not the, the reason behind the acknowledging here. The reason for the acknowledgement here is because you identify with Jesus and you're willing to go through anything in this life, even death, because your love for him surpasses all the love that you have for everything else. Do you love family? I love my family, yes. Do I love Jesus more than my family? Yes. Would I die for my family? Absolutely. Would I die for Jesus? Absolutely. Would I go to prison for Jesus? Absolutely. Would I like it? Not a heartbeat. Because who likes to suffer? Nobody does. But you see, I'm not above my master. And if they persecuted Christ, and for what he was preaching, the kingdom of God is now upon you, if I'm preaching the same message, living the same message, talking the same message, regardless if it's from the pulpit or from a cubicle in my office, I run the very risk of being persecuted. And there's a point here where I have to say to myself, you know what? I will have no fear. Will I like it? No, probably not. But I will have no fear. And in fact, I'll bet you in a, in a number of sequences of time, I will look back and rejoice because I saw the hand of God in my life sustaining me through those moments where I was dragged before my boss and demand to give an account for why I won't do certain things or why I won't include other things in my signatures. And I don't have to worry because the Spirit will give me the words to say. And if it's the Spirit giving me the words to say, that's even better. Because then their problem is not with me, it's with God. So what can we walk away with this morning from this section? Well, I think the first thing is, is that we know that all truth will eventually come to light. But also that we need to speak what we have heard and learned. We need to speak it clearly and boldly. And when I, when I mention that, brothers and sisters, I don't mean that you need to be like Don Quixote and just start charging everything that you see. There may be a time for that. But what I'm also saying is that we do with gentleness and respect in the sense we always are ready to give an answer for the hope that we have within us. But we do it with courage because we know whom, in whom we believe. As you courage in the, face of, in the face of persecution, 
comes from having a bigger picture in mind, right? Jesus says, don't, don't fear those who can just take your body but can't touch your soul. He says, fear the one who can touch your body and your soul. There's a bigger picture there. And if we have a bigger picture of who God is and what his plan of redemption is and how the Holy Spirit seals us for that day of redemption and how the Holy Spirit helps us to grow in our sanctification and become more like Christ, to give us the words to say and the actions to live out so that the gospel spreads throughout New Westminster, your communities, through the world, lived and spoken, you're going to face persecution because people don't like it. Primarily because of Romans chapter 1. They know the truth, but they suppress it. And brothers and sisters, you may be part of that suppression. They may want to suppress you because you're saying truth and they're being confronted with truth and they don't like it. So courage in the face of persecution comes from having a bigger picture of what's going on, a bigger picture of who you believe in, a bigger picture of where your final destination is, but also of what the kingdom mission is. Courage comes from understanding your value to God. Too much this society talks to us and tries to remind us of the value we should place in ourselves to remind us of just how unique you are and, and how much value you have as, as, a, as an individual being. And, you know, the danger is, is they're mixing a little bit of truth with a lot of lie. You are valuable. So much so that the very hairs on your head are counted. You are so valuable that God takes way more care of you than he does two sparrows. You are so valued that when you seek his kingdom and his righteousness, he gives you all these things that you need. You are so valued and so loved that he gave his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins, to bear the penalty and the wrath that you justly deserved. And then he rose from the dead on the third day. And then he's arisen to sit with the Father in heaven. And one day he's coming back. And on that glorious day when he comes back, or whether we die and go to be with him, we will hear him declare, this person, this saint is mine. I died for this saint. Their sins are covered with my blood. Forever sanctified, set apart for God's service. And whether that mission, that service is something in the shadows or low key that no one will ever know of, or whether you have a platform where thousands of people will know you and praise you, it doesn't matter. What matters is that God loves you and that he died for you and he has a mission for your life. And if you seek his will and his righteousness and you acknowledge him before men, He will acknowledge you before the Father. Because courage displays itself in allegiance. Courage displays itself by allegiance. There are so many of us who have a strong allegiance to a sports team, a school, family, heritage, maybe even wealth. And how hard you've worked to accumulate that. But all of that should pale in comparison to the allegiance that you have with Christ. Why? Because you'd be willing to forsake all of that for him.
Because in the same gospel, Jesus will say, if you're willing to let go of your life, you will find it. Pick up your cross and follow me. And the one who denies this life will receive eternal life. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of it all. Kingdom mission cannot rest on a decision to live a moral life. To embrace the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of the Lord Jesus and even what he says here. With some view of it just being purely moral will not take you very far. The moral and ethical aspects of the Sermon on the Mount flow out of a theological understanding of God. And it doesn't even have to be that deep and that wide. You just need to know who God is, Jesus is, and the Holy Spirit is. That's it. The gospel. And in your sanctification, you will grow in your understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father and the Spirit. But these things will flow out of an understanding of who Christ claimed to be and what he claimed to do. Persecution and maligning will bear that out. For these are the crucible which produce purity and assurance. Persecution breeds purity and assurance in your faith. Because you know when all the chips are down and you will not let go of Christ, that bears out your allegiance to him. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. And at the end of the gospel, Matthew records for us the mission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's our mission. And we do it with courage. Not our own, but the courage that comes from knowing Christ and knowing that he will deliver, knowing that he will, he will met out justice and he will give reward both in this life and the life to come. Let's pray.